You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We have been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes over the last few weeks, and our main goal is not to go through every verse. That would be really fun for me, maybe not for you. Uh, But our main goal has been to kind of pull out the big themes so that we can hear the overall message of the book. The main voice in the book is a wise teacher who tells us that life under the sun is vanity. That's how the book starts. Vanity, vanity. Everything is full of vanity. And the Hebrew word is is hevel. He uses it to say that life is fleeting, that meaning in this world is elusive, that answers are hard to come by, and all of that is frustrating and futile. That's what he means by hevel. But he also tells us that we can find God in the midst of all the hevel. And so far, we've seen God in his good gifts, Last week, we saw God of all places in the house of God. That makes sense. These are places you might expect to find God. This week, he takes us to a place that we might not expect, which is the house of mourning. The teacher wants us to think about our death, not to depress us, but to drive us to God. When I became a Christian in college, I had this older man who was discipling me, and he often asked me to think about my death in two ways. In one way, he would say, hey, I want you to think about where you're going to be for eternity. You know, you've got these 70 years on earth, but after that, life after death, where are you going to spend eternity? And if I envisioned eternity with God, then he would say, great. Now, how does that vision impact the way that you live your life now? These are like super heavy questions for a freshman in college, you know? But they became really formative for me in how I view the world and what I think the good life is. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher offers us this kind of wisdom and discipleship. We think the good life will be found in things like knowledge, power, status, approval and success and all of that sort of stuff. And he says, yeah, it's not actually that way. And he shows us one by one how all of that stuff is like chasing the wind. The truly good life, as we've seen, is learning how to trust God for the future, things that we can't see and can't predict, and learning how to enjoy God in the present, in what he's doing right in front of us. And the way we learn that, primarily, the teacher says, is by thinking about our death. Throughout the book, the reality of death is a conundrum for him. It's Hevel. And it's one of the things that makes him question at times, like, what is the point of life under the sun? At times, he comes just to the brink of despair, but right before he gets there, every single time, he starts talking about God, and it brings hope. And he's hoping that the same will happen for us today, that as we think about our death, we wouldn't give ourselves to despair, but that we would actually come to a place of hope. The reality of death is not meant to drive us to despair, it's meant to drive us to God and to teach us how to truly live. You see, when we think about the day of our death, uh, you know, you get sort of clear on what really matters in life. And when you get clarity about that, you can begin to work backwards and learn how to engage your present life in light of that. That's what he's saying. And so let's just work through that 
kind of bit by bit. First, death teaches us to work backward. I recommended a book a few weeks ago by David Gibson called Living Backward. Here's what he says. He says, we tend to live forward. One day follows another, weeks turn into months and months into years. None of us know the future for sure. Yet we make plans and we have dreams and ambitions about where we will be and what we will be doing and who we'll be with. We tend to live forward. Ecclesiastes, he says, invites us to work backward, to to let the one thing that's certain about the future, that is our death, to let that define our priorities and ambitions and dreams now. And that's what Ecclesiastes 7 is going to tell us. So look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Let me take that backwards. Uh, The day of birth is a beautiful day and it's full of potential, but it doesn't teach us how to live. It doesn't reveal anything about the character of the person, does it? Like the day of birth is just dreams and potential. You know, a a mom looks at her baby girl and has, you know, she's going to be so creative He's going to be so smart. So I thought, we don't know any of this, but these are the dreams we have for them. And if you notice, the dreams are always good things, right? No parent looks at their baby and is like, oh, look at her. I bet she's going to grow up and date the wrong guys. I bet he's going to just be so emotionally unhealthy. You know, nobody says that. That's not what the day of birth is about. The day of birth doesn't measure our life in any way. You know where our lives will be measured? At our funeral. If you live a life of wisdom and generosity and kindness, you'll hear about that. Well, you won't, but people will hear about that at your funeral. If you live a life of foolishness and selfishness, well, we'll just talk about how cute you were as a baby. Be, you know, what else will we say? The day of birth is about potential. The day of death reveals the substance of a person. It tells us what kind of person they were and what kind of life they lived. That's the contrast in the verse. So let's look at the first part now. A good name is better than precious ointment. He's making the same point a different way. Ointment is like perfume, you know? So if a guy has on some good smelling perfume, there's some potential there, right? But what if he's just got a rotten character? Ladies, what do you want? Do you want a guy who's well-groomed or a guy who's courageous and trustworthy? All the ladies said, both. (laughs) Of course you do. The point here is, that uh, if he doesn't have good character, then who cares if he smells good? That only lasts so long. It doesn't really tell you about the substance of the person. And so death teaches us to think about ourselves this way, too. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to imagine yourself in your old age. For some of you, that's easier than others. For most of you, that's a long way off. Imagine yourself in your old, old, old age. You know, you don't, you don't have good muscle definition. Your skin's getting kind of, getting real loose. Your hair is like a shade of silver or purple. You know, you, you go to the doctor more than you used to. You go to the bathroom more than you used to. It, you're not in your physical prime anymore. That day has come and gone a long time ago. Some of you are like, I don't like this exercise. I want to go home. But that's the point. 
Our bodies are going to break down someday. Our strength and looks and vitality, all of it is on the decline. That is the way life is under the sun. But here's the opportunity. Our inner life, our spiritual vitality, our character and our love, that has potential to blossom and grow over time. And so let's step back and just learn from the day of death. Are we now investing more energy and time and thought into that which is destined to decline or into that which has the opportunity to blossom and grow? It's fine to be healthy. It's good to be eat healthy, exercise, go to the doctor. All of that is good. But none of that matters more than the depth of person you are, than your character and your love for God and for others. So think about your funeral. What do you want people to say? Oh, he had good abs in his 20s, didn't he? Yeah. No. You want people to say, we had she was courageous. She was kind. She was, she was so beautiful in spirit. Right? If you want people to say those kinds of things, then work backward and start living into that reality now. That's what the teacher is saying. If you get a good tan along the way, great, praise Jesus. We have to start caring now more about substance than we do appearances, both in ourselves and in others. Death teaches us to work backwards so that we can start becoming the kind of people we want to be. My disciple in college, he had all these little sayings like this, and this was one of them. He would say, you'll never be who you're not becoming. He would also say, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Just stuff like that. Death is certain. It's certain. It doesn't matter. Rich or poor, strong or weak, wise or foolish, we all have the same end. That's Ecclesiastes 9. The question is, is how will we respond to the reality of death? And you kind of have two basic options. You can engage it and learn from it, or you can look for escape. Death teaches us to engage. Verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. All right. You've got two invitations. You wake up on a Saturday morning, you start shuffling through the mail on your desk. You've got two invitations. One is to the house of feasting. There will be food and drink and merriment. The other one is to the house of mourning. Uh, there will be somberness and some tears, probably a vegetable tray somewhere. These are your options. Which one are you going to go to? The party or the funeral? Now, some people I know will say the funeral, but maybe for the wrong reasons. Some of us say, I'm going to go to the funeral because for a variety of reasons, we're, we're actually more comfortable with sadness. And look, the teacher of all people sympathizes with that, but he also warns us that that can be a form of escape. Like, there are times to lament, but it's not all the time. And I think he's trying to warn us to say, like, don't let your 
preference for melancholy or angst keep you from learning how to enjoy the life God has given you? Zach Eswine says, sadness is not better. What's better is to learn from sadness how to truly live. The wise person goes to the funeral not because they prefer it, but because they want to engage reality and learn from it. And verse 2 says, it's in the house of mourning that we, we remember that this is the end of all mankind. This is where my life is going. And the living will lay it to heart. To lay something to heart means to like really think about it, to contemplate it, to consider the brevity of life, to ask the question, what does my life say about me? You see, when you go to a funeral, it gives you space to ask those kinds of questions, doesn't it? In a way that a party just doesn't. Like nobody's on the dance floor of a wedding going, I wonder if my life has substance, you know? Nobody's doing that. That's why I'm over at the table watching you dance on the dance floor. I'm thinking about deep stuff over there. It's not about not being able to dance at all. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. All right. Most of us would go to the party on that Saturday, right? That's normal. What's not normal, and what's going on here, is that the fool always goes to the party, never goes to the funeral. In fact, he'll go to the party if for no other reason than to just avoid the house of sorrow and mourning. He just, it's not that he's afraid of death, he just doesn't know what to do with it. And so he seeks escape in a busy social calendar. Death invites us to become a person of depth to move past superficiality and diversion and to like plant some roots with people, to engage their lives, even if it's in the house of sorrow. He compares this invitation to the rebuke of a wise friend. Verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. All right, we don't like to think about our death because it makes us think about our limits and our mortality and that kind of stuff, right? In the same way, we don't like to hear rebuke. We don't want to hear about our weaknesses and failures. A song is nice, though. I like the sound of a song. That sounds better than rebuke every day. But the song of fools is nothing but flattery and distraction. It's just people who always agree with you. They support your theory that the problem is always someone else. The teacher says that the song of fools is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. So these are um, like twigs gathered from thorn bushes and they were used as kindling for fire. So they're under the pot, you can't see them, but they, they heat up quickly, they get a little fire going, it's crackling under there. But that fire goes out quick. It, it doesn't heat the pot adequately. And so while it sounds good, like that, man, there's a fire crackling under there, it doesn't produce anything of use or of substance. That's the song of fools. These people will not be singing at your funeral. There's, there's not enough depth of relationship to even make it that long. 
most of your Instagram followers will not be at your funeral. Oh, but they hearted me. They won't be there. You know who will be there? People with whom you have real relationships, who you have rebuked and been rebuked by. The teacher is saying, think about your funeral. Think about the richness of relationships that you want to be present there and work backward and start cultivating those kinds of relationships now. Start leaning into engaging the hard stuff like being rebuked, like forbearing, like living sacrificially, not always getting your way. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Lean into that if that's the day you want. Otherwise, you're just destined for the song of fools. When Kendall and Todd and I started talking about planting a church 11 years ago, uh, we had a lot of conversations. In one of those conversations, Todd said, hey, man, uh, he's talking to me. He said, hey, I need you to commit to 10 years if I'm going to do this. I was like, oh, okay, sure, but man, that's a weird thing to ask. Like, why, do you, why are you asking me that? He said, because you've never done anything longer than three years in your life. That's a nice friendly rebuke, isn't it? I was open to it immediately with humility and a soft heart. I started playing chess in my head. He has entered my territory. How do I remove this piece from the board? So I start thinking. But that's true. I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes the idea of new things and new places. When I visit a place, I spend most of my time thinking about what it would be like to live there rather than just enjoying the place. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know the full answer to that question, but I suspect that part of the answer has to do with relationships. When relationships are new, they're so easy and fun, aren't they? It's all potential and dreams. But to have depth of relationship with someone, well, that takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of hard conversations, a lot of endurance. It's hard. And so I think that this part of me that daydreams about new places and new people has to do with an escape. An escape to the easy parts of relationships rather than engaging the hard parts of relationships where I am and learning how to grow in them. Maybe, maybe not. Eleven years later, here we are. Well, Todd's not here. He'll be back next week. We think. But at this point, I've known Todd and Kendall for 20, over 20 years. I've been friends with some of you for, for that long. Debbie and I are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary this week. And as the years with these people just start to pile up, you know what's happening in my soul? I just find that less and less do I desire somewhere else. And more and more, the vision of just growing old and dying with these people sounds awesome. And thinking about that, which is closer all the time, causes me to work backwards and go, man, I just want to invest in these people right here where I am. That's one thing death is teaching me. What about you? In what ways do you look for escape rather than engaging life right where you are?
it can be hard to see in ourselves sometimes. And so the teacher gives us some examples of ways that we escape. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So even wise people can buckle under pressure at times. And they're susceptible to a bribe. So look, all sin is a form of escape. In the case of a bribe, it's an escape from responsibility. Look, there are going to be moments in your life, I promise you, where you're going to feel as though you are under immense pressure. And a lot of those moments have to do with like financial pressure. And it's such a critical moment. Because if you give in to the moment, it corrupts your heart. Your heart is the center of who you are. It feeds every part of your life. And so if you betray yourself in a moment, it doesn't just stay in that moment. The ripple effects go far beyond that moment. So how will you handle financial pressure? The teacher says, start by looking at the day of death. Think about your funeral. Will the money you got from that bribe matter to you on that day? Will it be of any use to you? It won't matter to you more than your name, I promise you that. More than your integrity. So why should it matter that much now? Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. I hate this verse with all of myself. Because the end of the thing is a thing done, complete, right? The beginning of a thing is like an idea. An idea, people love ideas. But look, he's just saying, what good is a good idea if nobody does it? An average thing completed is better than a great thing not done, right? And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Impatience is an escape from how things work, right? The end of a thing being better than the idea of a thing, that's how the world really works. And impatience is an escape from that. A fruitful life requires humility and endurance. But an impatient and proud heart says, I know a shortcut. I have a better, a new idea. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart. A counselor once told me that anger is just a blocked goal. So when your kids are angry, it's because they're not getting something they want. And when a kid doesn't get what he wants, whether it's a toy or a parent's affection, they, they don't know how to cope with that reality, and so they get angry. So anger is just an escape from our inability to cope with things not going the way we want them to. And this is at the root of the polarized culture that we're living in. We have groups of people with very short-sighted goals that are getting blocked, and so they don't know how to cope with that reality. So they fight anger with anger, which means culturally we're like in preschool. Verses 8 and 9 tell us, give us a complete picture. They tell us that when we understand the end goal, two things happen. Our patience increases and our anger decreases. Some of you don't, won't know what I'm talking about, but before Google Maps, driving was hard. 
Because I'd go to a place, I'm like, well, this takes 15 minutes. I've done this before. I don't know what's out there. So then I hit traffic, and I don't know if this is going to delay me five minutes or five hours. I don't know. So I panic, I get anxious, I get angry. I want to, I do, honk the horn at people who are in the same boat I am. That's heavy. It doesn't make any sense. But then Waze came along. Waze tells me exactly how long it's going to take to get there. And so maybe it'll say, this is going to take 28 minutes today. And that's fine. I'm signing up for that. I know the end game, don't I? So now when I come to the same spot of traffic, it's like, yeah, no, I signed up for this. It's going to take 28 minutes. I know exactly what's happening here. My patience increases. My anger decreases. The teacher is saying, you need to think about your life this way. Think about how it's going to end. And then relax and enjoy the process of getting there. Verse 10, last example. Say not. All right, don't say this. There are going to be times when these words want to come out of your mouth. Don't let them. Say not. Why were the former days better than these? And don't say that. It is not from wisdom that you ask this question. That's what he said. He's saying, this is a dumb question. There are no dumb questions. Yes, this one is. This isn't about having good memories. That's fine. What's happening here is there's this longing for the good old days to somehow be transported back to a time that we are sure was, was just perfect, so much better than now. Look, that's foolish for a lot of reasons, but the main reason is, is that now, here is the place where God has us. Not in the good old days. And so David Gibson says, to wish for some other time is a form of escape from the reality of God's presence here and now. You wouldn't have started if you went back to high school, okay? Those days are gone. Escape perpetuates shallowness and immaturity. But engaging, going to the house of mourning, cultivates depth in a person. So what does this look like practically? How does engaging, how does death help us find God in everyday life. Death teaches us to hope in God. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The gist of this, he's just saying, life is not a straight path. There are twists and turns and ups and downs. You will see things in life that you can't fix and lots of things that you can't even explain. And number one on that list is the reality of death. So our lack of control reminds us that we're creatures. And if we'll let that sink in, it'll turn our hearts to hope in the creator. There is a sovereign God who rules, who is in control, who will in fact set straight everything that's crooked in this world. And that frees us to take all of our crooked things and set them in the hands of of God, and to trust him. It doesn't make life easy, but it gives us hope. 
Romans 8 tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, look, I know that that verse gets thrown around like cliche. It's like we're over it already. But it's in the Bible. So let's not overlook what it's actually saying. It's not saying that the ground of our hope is that God will make everything turn out the way we want it to. That's such a puny vision for the world, isn't it? It is saying that God will make everything turn out the way he wants it to, and that is a glorious vision, and we're a part of those plans. Nothing can change it. And so just a few verses later, Paul says, I'm certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That kind of security in the hands of God brings such freedom to our lives. It means we don't have to look for escape. Why would we? We're in the hands of God. We can engage life right where we are, trusting him that nothing can separate us from his love. Here's how we do that. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So look, when things go well, celebrate. Rejoice. Go out to dinner. Have friends over. Have a little party. God likes a good party. Right? Enjoy the good gifts God has given you. This is the kind of eating and drinking that that the teacher commends. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. When things do not go well, consider, he says. Don't react. Don't look for escape. Consider. Step back and see what you can learn from the moment. Engage it and let God teach you how to live in these moments. All hardship, sadness, death points us to God. It turns our hearts to him. It reminds us that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And it teaches us to put our hope, not in the things of this world, but in the one who has come to redeem this world. What gives our life meaning is not the stuff we're chasing. It's the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His death was the greatest hevel of all, right? It's the greatest injustice and enigma the world has ever known. But God, like here's a case of bad things in the hands of God working for good. God was working through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to bring life to the world. God is working in the things in your life that feel like death to turn them into resurrection life. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you remain under the curse of sin and death. But if your hope is in him, and it can be, you're not stuck in despair. You can trust in him now. And if that's true, whoever's hope is in him, they have overcome death in him. They have newness of life now in him. They can trust and enjoy God right where they are. Let's thank him for this new life.
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.